Welcome to New Books in Media and Communications, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts, featuring discussions with scholars on all forms of media content and technology. I'm your host, John Baltz, a marketing and advertising professional. Our website is newbooksandcommunications.com, where you can find a short summary of the book discussed on today's show, as well as our archives where you can listen to past conversations. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. If you like us, please tell a friend or leave a review. Your feedback helps us have better conversations with authors. Today, I talk with Cass Sunstein about his book, The World According to Star Wars, just released this week by HarperCollins. As the title suggests, the book covers a lot of grounds, success in life, freedom of choice, relationships between fathers and sons, political rebellion, and yes, constitutional law. Cass Sunstein is, among other things, one of the most widely known and respected law professors in the country. He told a reporter recently, quote, if you told me a year ago that I'd write a book about Star Wars, I'd say it's more likely that I'd become an astronaut or a poet. So how did he end up writing a book about Star Wars? His son got him hooked. Difficult to see, always in motion is the future, says the always wise Yoda. Cass and I talk Star Wars for half an hour. I hope you enjoy it. My guest today is Cass Sunstein, Harvard Law professor, former administrator at the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, member of President Obama's Review of Group on Intelligence and Communications. He is a prolific author. You can Google him if you're curious about his writings. Needless to say, they cover a huge range of topics, so it only makes sense he would stretch even further and write about one of the most, in fact, the most successful movie franchises of all time. Uh, Cass, welcome to the New Books and Media and Communications podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Now, the title of your book certainly matches the scale of the subject, The World According to Star Wars. At the heart, you seem to be writing about two interrelated subjects, success and choice. One, why was Star Wars so successful, and how do we tell that story of success? Uh, and two, what is Star Wars telling us about heroes and, vic- and, heroes and villains uh, in its guidance you are free to choose? Uh, absolutely. So if there's one theme of the movie that really captures, uh, I think, the appeal of it, it's that at every moment, really, every day, we have freedom. Uh, even if we live, by the way, in a less than free society, we can act in a way that's uh, generous and kind or maybe genuinely heroic in a large sense. We can take uh, a a particular path that leads to uh, uh, making things a little better for us and the people we care about or or not. Uh, The Sith, like the Jedi, uh, respect freedom of choice. They're uh, allied on that. And that is uh, a kind of all-American but also universal uh, theme of the Star Wars saga about freedom of choice. In terms of the success of the movie, uh, this was not anticipated, to say the least. The uh, people behind the movie, many of them thought that it would be a disaster, and the high-end projections were it'd be like a kind of standard Disney movie. That was the high-end projections. So they had no idea that it would be so spectacularly uh, successful, uh, which I think is true of many politicians and products uh, and ideas that there's a lot of uh, uh, serendipity and uh, lack of destiny, let's say, behind what happens. Uh, We can say a lot about why it worked out as it did. 
I think one thing that accounts for it is that there was a cascade effect early on, both involving the transmission from one person to another of a sense that this was like nothing ever seen before, uh, a little like what happened with Harry Potter, uh, even larger, but a little like what happened with Harry Potter, and also people forming clusters where if you hadn't seen or didn't like Star Wars, you were, you were a weirdo. And so it became a... Uh, a kind of uh, like a card uh, into a club uh, seeing Star Wars. And, and that was pretty important to its success. Now, the creation of Star Wars or any movie is related, but can be certainly independent of, <clears throat> excuse me, of the success of it afterwards. One of the pieces, you go into some details about Lucas, George Lucas, and the creation of it. Uh, and how the story that he was telling changes over time. But I want to focus on one piece, which is about the process, where I think it's sort of well-known, uh, maybe if listeners, maybe some listeners may not know, but, but George Lucas is not known for writing dialogue. Uh, and he doesn't like to write dialogue, and it doesn't come easy to him, but he did it, uh, and he created processes to help him do it. I was curious if if there are aspects of your work outputs that you find dreadful or even challenging and and how you how you like George Lucas get it done. Well, I really like my work. So if I'm working on some legal topic, uh I tend to enjoy it. Uh, this book was the most fun I've ever had. If I'm doing something that has to do with behavioral economics or behavioral science, that's almost as fun as Star Wars. So I, I, I rarely struggle. Uh, there's, I'm blessed in that. Uh, if I have something that is a struggle, and I guess I'd say that uh, some topics on which I've written uh, it feels a little like pulling teeth in the sense that I don't have any inspiration to do them. And when I was in government, the work, extremely important work with real consequences, but some of it, a, a slog of working through problems that are more important than they are fascinating. And uh, to think of it as uh, my, my strategy is to think of it as, as an assignment that just has to be done. And to think that for the next couple of hours, I'm going to do the assignment, uh, even if I'm not particularly enjoying it, that is a, uh, a way through a slog. I think Lucas uh, had a similar approach, by the way, where he thought, this isn't stuff I'm really liking, but I'm just going to put myself in a room until it's done. Uh, that can be uh, a way through uh, a few hours that aren't, uh, aren't so joyful. Yeah, I think that is a process that, that you described that he's going through. Uh, you mentioned that this is the most fun you've had writing a book. I, that's not surprising reading it. I will say, just as an example, you rank the movies. You just, your, your authoritative or non-authoritative uh, ranking of the movies, uh, and you put Empire Strikes Back at the top. Why did you put Empire Strikes Back at the top? And it's the best. <laughs> Why is it the best to you? 
the reason I believe it to be the best is that it uh, takes an intriguing, uh, somewhat giddy uh, uh, take on Flash Gordon, which is A New Hope, and it gives it a great deal of depth. So the idea that the worst person in the world is actually the father of our hero and in pitched battle with him, both to turn him to the dark side and maybe to kill him, uh, that's pretty deep stuff. Uh, it also, in the words of Lawrence Kasdan, the co-author, it moves like a son of a bitch. And that's um, a movie that moves like a son of a bitch is going to be pretty good. And it has one of the great lines in any Star Wars movie, or in fact, any movie, which is when Leia tells Han Solo, I love you. Uh, Harrison Ford responds, uh, I know, which is the perfect line. And it was, by, uh, by the way, improvised by Harrison Ford. It was not George Lucas's creation. It, it has... No missteps, that movie. The creation of Yoda, that is inspired and genius. Uh, the fact that this little hermit turns out to be uh, the most powerful Jedi Knight, the great master, that's fantastic. The fact that Obi-Wan kind of comes back is, is comforting and good. The fact that it ends with a bunch of question marks, that that's great. So uh, it's not only the best Star Wars movie, it's, it's, it's the best movie ever. Wow. Uh, okay. Sorry, Kane. Sorry, Orson Welles. <laughs> Sorry, Martin Scorsese. How, how many times have you seen it at this point? Probably at least eight, at most 15. <laughs> Hard to count when you've seen it so often. Yeah. You didn't, you, st well, let me pause. The, uh, the line, I, I'm your father, epic line. Uh, you refer to it frequently in the book, including at, literally on page one in the first chapter, uh, but you come back to it many times. And you have a chapter uh, in the book titled Fathers and Sons, which maybe is about fathers and children or just parents and children. Um, what do you, in your view, what, what do parents do for children in Star Wars? Um, and then what do the children in turn do for their parents that's applicable beyond Star Wars? What children do for their parents, if things are going well, is they redeem them. And I think all parents at some level feel that way, even if they've lived a otherwise fantastic and full life. So if you're... You know, struggling in your life and things haven't gone so great, or if you've done things that you're not really proud of, or if you feel uh, in some ways like you've been a creep, uh, if your kid loves you, that is uh, the thing that can completely fill your heart. And any parent, I think, feels that if, if, if the child loves you and is doing well, that's at least as important, probably even more important, then uh, life has been either adequately or very well lived. And uh, Lucas, who had a very troubled relationship with his own dad, did something I think very beautiful and kind of surprising in saying that, uh, uh, a child who has faith in a, in a parent uh, can can save, almost in a Christian sense, maybe not nearly almost in a Christian sense, maybe in a Christian sense, can save the parent's soul. Uh, 
And I think there's something deep and deeply true in that. Uh, what a parent can do for a child, and the, the parents in Star Wars aren't so great. Uh, the, the best, I think, is the maybe is Anakin's mother, who's, who's a great mother. You can see it on her face, um, though she, she loses them. Um, the, what parents can do for their children is, 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 is be good. Uh, where good means uh, be connected and also be good. And what, uh, you know, there's so many lines that are candidates for the best line. I think the most moving line in, in Star Wars is when uh, Luke, having resisted the dark side uh, and declining to kill his father, which he was sorely fem- tempted to do, uh, turns to the emperor and says, you have failed your highness. I am a Jedi like my father before me. That's fantastic uh, because he's allying himself with his father, who's the worst person in the universe, and he's identifying his father as, as a Jedi. And on one view, that's a cheat because uh, while he was a Jedi, his life was that of a Sith. But on, I think, another view, which is the correct one, it is right because um, uh, eventually uh, uh, the Sith turns Jedi and saves Luke. So he earns that, that's, that statement in his dying moments. Uh, Darth Vader is a Jedi, and every dad is both Jedi and Sith to every child. Uh, you see that father and big and strong and a deep, booming voice and capable of, of anything. Um, uh, what the father as, as Jedi or Sith can do is uh, protect the child, be, be in some way a hero to the, the child. Uh, that, that's, what, that's what's needed. Redemption, just following up on that piece, is is there anything that's sort of outside the bounds of what potentially is redeeming? So you mentioned, you know, an identity or, you know, obviously saving somebody at, you know, sort of repaying saving or caring. Um, What are other sort of common forms of, of redemption, either in Star Wars or that you've thought about that parents... Uh, or that children do for their parents? Well, uh, there are so many different ways that uh, a, a child can redeem. I, I have a daughter. She's three years old. Um, uh, my, I have a big daughter who's in her 20s and a boy who's seven. My daughter, uh, I confess... I would not rank myself toward her as an amazing father. I love her. I adore her. You know, I travel a lot. Uh, I spend a lot of time with my little boy. Uh, I I hope to be an amazing father in the fullness of time. I I would not uh, give myself that characterization today. But whenever I see her, she brightens with a kind of... uh, um, guileless, uh, uh, forgiving is, is not the right word because it's not as if she sees anything to forgive, but joy that I'm there. 
And that is, you know, a, a form of redemption. I, I can't have been gone. I can't have been out for three hours with my boy. I can't have been working on the computer for longer than probably makes any sense. And she sees me and it's, you know, it's as if there's been a sunburst. And that's, that's, that's redemption. Shifting away from the human relationships in Star Wars and thinking a bit about just the entire franchise uh, and, the again, the writing of it, the producing of it, um, you make a point about – you draw from some legal theory about using a metaphor uh, of serialized novels potentially applying in a legal case as well, and certainly Star Wars is a – a serialized movie uh, that's a huge piece of culture always sort of has been uh, and is, is very popular today. Now that one of the things that's interesting, I think that you bring up is, is the serialization process. Nothing is, is there's pre-planning and there's some forecasting, but nothing is, is preordained. Um, and I was curious how the, serialization process is different the closer you are to the start versus the end or not the end, the seventh, eighth, ninth episode, uh, and how that might be similar difference or verse if for a movie or a book, uh, versus a legal opinion. Okay. So let's talk about the similarities. Mm -hmm. Um, if you are writing, let's say, a serial movie with a bunch of different episodes, and you can even think of a single movie as having a bunch of different episodes, they do, uh, what you have to do in the second is to maintain continuity with the first, but also make sense of it. So if after the first scenes in, let's say, uh, 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 Superman, where uh, his parents get him to Krypton. Then it turns out that uh, he's he's grown and obsessively in love with a man. That could work, but it would just seem random. That the he's grown all of a sudden in love with a man. What does that have to do with the thing where he leaves Krypton? It, it just like a different kind of plot, and and seems a little bizarre and be be hard to make it work. On the other hand, if he goes to uh, lands in Krypton, and then uh, there's an old couple that's childless that adopts him, and he subtly shows super strength. That 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 works. That's interesting. And then if at some other stage he uh, could be, you know, the greatest athlete in high school, but his father says, you must not show your powers, you must hide them, that is both what happened and that's interesting. If in high school it turns out that uh, he lost all his powers and he's the weakest person in the school and he has to be in a wheelchair, that seems random. So that's what creation involves, continuity and amazing additions if it works well law is exactly like that so think about uh equality law it's all about adding episodes and the episodes can be like i am your father moments which uh both astound 
many people, but also cast everything before it in a new and somehow um, uh, sensible light. So when the court in the 1970s said that discrimination on the basis of sex was forbidden by the Equal Protection Clause. That was real I am your father stuff. It renovated everything that had gone before, but it also maintained continuity with it and had cast it in a way that seemed, well, it stood the test of time and seemed to many at the time to be uh, both stunning and you know, deeply correct. And uh, the legal disputes we're now having over the power of the president, abortion, affirmative action, surveillance, they all involve the construction of some new episode very much in the same sense. It might sound a little silly, but I think it's literally true, very much in the same sense that writing episodes seven and eight and nine have in Star Wars. You can't turn it all into nonsense by having an episode eight where it turns out the entire episode seven was Luke Skywalker's dream at the end of Return of the Jedi. That would be a cheat for the audience. And if it turned out that Kylo Ren actually was Han Solo and there was some weird thing where he cloned himself as a young man and so he was killing this would make no sense. So they have to do something that's interesting and uh, and fairly connected with, with what came before, but also that makes it um, more interesting than it was. Now, in constitutional law, the casting of the best light means something like fidelity to our uh, constitutional traditions, which both imposes more cons- distinctive kinds of constraints on what the episodes could look like, an artist doesn't have those kinds of constraints. So to take uh, episode eight in you know very radical directions could completely work uh, if it has the same what uh, uh, broad universe of Star Wars in it. Uh, to take our constitutional tradition in a radical new tra- tra- direction that could be a betrayal, really. And so there are constraints that are different kinds of constraints from law. But episode creation, that's what law is. That's what presidencies are, where the next president may may be continuous with or repudiate uh, the immediate predecessor, but to be continuous with one understanding of what our uh, political system is basically about is kind of an imperative. And if you're not continuous with at least a reasonable account of what the tradition is, you risk impeachment. One thing that that I I thought you might go this a different path on on what's different about it, um, which to me, it seems that in books, movies, whatnot, I, to tell you, there's more clarity in what chapter you're writing. Whereas in law or political debates or whatever it is, there's less clarity about to a judge or a president or a political actor, I'm writing chapter four. When J.J. Abrams is sitting down to work on Force Awakens, it's pretty clear he's writing Chapter 7. 
You're right. And so let's think about that a bit. So he knows he's doing Chapter 7. Let's say the Supreme Court in a case involving surveillance, it doesn't have a number for its episode. Mm -hmm. And it also has some discretion to write that episode or some other episode. So the court has some authority over its own jurisdiction. So it can say, I'm not going to do the surveillance episode until next year I'm going to do the same-sex marriage episode. So that's that's true. Within the context of choosing the area in which you're going to write the next episode, it's not literally numbered, but in a way it's easy to do and it's implicitly numbered because the surveillance case, let's suppose it's something about electronic surveillance uh, and involves cell phones or websites, uh, there will be a specified number of cases that come before. There might be six or 12 or three, and those cases are going to be all over the briefs and all over the opinions. So you do have a duty to be uh, um, faithful, unless you're going to overrule something, to an enumerated set of things, which are prior decisions of the court. So the analogy, I think, is pretty close for constitutional law and law generally. For presidencies, you're right, it it is different. Now, I worked in the White House and uh, in working on, let's say, regulatory policy involving the environment. It, it does have something like episode creation, because if you're going to issue a new regulation involving, let's say, particulate matter, uh, the first question really is what do the old regulations on particulate matter say and what was the theory behind them? And if you're going to depart from them, uh, you have to have a reason. Now, a good reason would be we have new science that suggests that existing levels are uh, not safe, but that's deeply continuous with the previous episodes, which say the stringency of regulation will depend on what the safe science shows with respect to safety. So it's the same theory. If, we, if you go off on a different direction, let's say, and say that we're going to do cost-benefit analysis in an area where cost-benefit analysis hadn't been done before, that's uh, there's a burden of justification there because you're abandoning the old episodes. So I don't want to oversell the analogy, but there is, in many domains of government decision-making, uh, something like uh, an obliga- a felt obligation of fidelity to the past. Now, of course, if there's a new administration in place that doesn't like the recent past, things get more complicated. But that can be true for serials also, where if you think, you know, episode X was really foolish, you can say, well, it was all a dream. Uh, they did a version of that in Dallas, or you can take it in directions that downplay what happened there. Sounds like what you're saying is clarity of story, if not episode X, or clarity of where where you are in a story. Sort Completely. Of. And when individual lives are like that too. So when you decide what you're going to do over the next six months, you might think at some level I'm trying to make the narrative of my life the best it can be. And if that narrative involves huge departures from the past, well, that's an I am your father uh, judgment in a way. So the other piece there is if that's the case, there's some clarity of 
where you are in a story. Um, uh, I, yeah, I do see actually how you had made the point earlier that one of the, one of the differences in the sort of for judicial, in the judicial example, you know, there's constraints about how far you can go or not go based on recent pieces of the story, chapters or whatnot. Um, but that seems to apply. No, go ahead. So let me give this a little maybe more bite. There's a view of law which says in the constitutional area that the obligation of the judge is to follow the intentions of the framers or the original public meaning of the document. That's a widespread view. It's in our political culture and it's in our, some of our Supreme Court opinions. But that is not how it works. Mm. It, 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 describing our practice, that is ridiculous. The constitutional law isn't a matter of uncovering the intentions or the original public meaning of the document. For better or for worse, it just isn't that. What is it? It's episode creation. It's a matter of maintaining faith with what's happened before and also making it really as good as the authors think it can be made to be. And that's what J.J. Abrams' obligation was in Seven, and that's what Lucas was doing. And for Lucas, there were bursts of creative insight where things went on paths he did not anticipate. And that's what law involves, too. Same-sex marriage is required in every state of the union. That was not anticipated even in 2006. In fact, that would have been a very extreme suggestion in 2006. And that's that's how our law often works, through Lucas-like bursts, mm. not of, you know, uh, artistic inventiveness, but of uh, moral or political commitment more that takes things in novel directions. Okay, that's fair. I was thinking more along sort of basically the constraints of the artist, which in a commercial context, actually can be more significant. I and mean, if you take the J.J. The Abrams example, right, the Force is a perfect, the Force Awakens being perfect to me because one of the reasons people loved it so much was, oh, it brings back the spirit of the original Star Wars, New Hope. But that was yeah. also one of its primary criticisms, right? It was following the plot line very closely, it was <laughs> playing on all that nostalgia. So that constraint certainly applied in the artistic context, but it had enormous commercial success. That seems to me, it's not a perfect analogy, but something that's more like what's happening in, certainly in a political context, I don't know so much about a legal context. Yeah, you're right. So if you have a new episode that's kind of genius, but everyone's going to hate it, and it's going to tank at the box office, uh, people aren't going to make that movie. And in the political context, if you have a way of continuing the narrative, let's say that is in a deep sense correct, but voters are going to say, um, really? Uh, then you're not going to do it. So you're in the legal context, too, by the way, that if judges have a direction that seems to them very appealing, but the country as a whole will find it bizarre, uh, the judges will be reluctant to do it. Got it. Final question for you here. You, as I said, you, you write a lot. You write lots of things. Um, every year you write behavioral economics Oscars column, another like like the book, a fun column, fun thing to write. Uh, you give out awards for best actor, best actress, you know, all the usual kinds of Oscar categories, uh, and you base them on how well they showcase different behavioral, behavioral economics ideas or principles. 
2015, Star, uh, Star Wars Force Awakens did not win Best Picture. Uh, Daisy Ridley did win for Best Actress, in your view. How close was uh, Force Awakens to, to making it to Best Picture? Well, the Academy is often very secretive about the awarding of the Behavioral Economics Oscars, especially since the Behavioral Economics Oscars have uh, now gone beyond the Oscars themselves as the most coveted year-end movie awards. So I'm really not at liberty to disclose where The Force Awakens fell in the, uh, the list of finalists, but, but it was second. <laughs> Excellent. Keeping up the tradition of Oscar mystery. I like it, sort of. Uh, my guest today has been Cass Sunstein. He is the author of The World According to Star Wars. Thank you very much for being part of the New Books and Media and Communications podcast. Thank you, John. Enjoyed it much. Mm-hmm.